Uh, this is KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Um, today we're going to be talking about the film industry, which is embroiled in an uh, ongoing strike by the Screenwriters Guild. And uh, with us will be uh, two guests. Uh, one, a film writer, a screenwriter, and a director, and the other, uh, observer, an observer, an anthropology graduate student here at UC Irvine. Um, first, some news. Uh, this week, the um, a, a program uh, uh, opened, an exhibit uh, opened at uh, UC Irvine Libraries um, on Cuba, replacing one on uh, the Highlanders of North Vietnam, of uh, Vietnam, and. Uh, <laughs> This Cuba one uh, focuses on the UC Cuba Initiative, which is a group of uh, researchers who are researching Cuba from the University of California, and they have a license from the government to travel to Cuba. At the opening ceremony, uh, Professor Raul Fernandez uh, of Chicano Latino Studies uh, mentioned that uh, there's a diversity of political viewpoints on that in that group. Uh, there are some that believe in regime change in Cuba, and there are some that believe in regime change in America. So that got a lot of an applause and um, laughter at the program that opened. Uh, this exhibit opened uh, this past week and is now going on at the Langson Library in the lobby of the UC Irvine uh, Social Science Humanities Library, basically. Uh, also, today's newspaper brings one an obituary of uh, Francine Parker, 81, who made a pioneering film um, about military opposition to the Vietnam War called FTA, uh, stood for Free the Army or something else. And uh, this film was, uh, uh, was, uh, was featuring um, uh, Jane Fonda and uh, Donald Sutherland as they toured military bases in Southeast Asia uh, to find out what the troops uh, thought about the war and to bring the anti-war message to them. Excerpts of that film were included in Sir No Sir, uh, a more contemporary uh, film that looked at military opposition since the 60s and that has been showing around campuses, I believe. Uh, so th- that uh, was the this uh, obituary uh, is in today's... Uh, LA Times. Uh, today we're going to be talking with um, two people, and one of them is uh, um, um, is a director of a, a Vietnam film called Three Seasons, which won uh, two awards at Sundance and um, an Audience Award and uh, and uh, another f- another award at Sundance. And uh, he's currently working on a project for HBO, and so. He had to go on strike uh, because the Screenwriters Guild, uh, the, sorry, the Writers Guild of America, West and East Coast divisions are out on strike. 12,000 members um, have been picketing uh, both on both coasts. And so we're going to be talking to him about what he thinks of the strike and why he's participating. Uh, it's an interesting... Uh, uh, issue because uh, usually you don't hear of many Asians going on strike in the in cultural productions, uh, but this is uh, 
a change now. And as he will talk about the increase in number of Asians in the Writers Guild uh, since uh, he started in the Guild. And he was a writer of his own uh, movie, The Three Seasons, and also a co-writer of Green Dragon, which his brother uh, directed, which is based on the um, influx of refugees at Camp Pendleton, a story set in Camp Pendleton near here with Forrest Whitaker and a little boy in that film. So we'll bring you this interview, and then later on we'll be talking with a scholar that's looking at... uh, um, cultural production and uh, in the media, the use of media in both Hollywood and in Hong Kong. So let's uh, go to our interview with uh, Tony Bui, who is the director of uh, Three Seasons. Yeah, uh, you're a screenwriter as well as a director. Uh, yes, yes I am. Yeah. Uh, are you working on a screenplay right now, where, or were you working as a uh, at the time of the stri- the strike started, yeah, well, I'm in the uh, in the middle of doing a project for HBO called The Walk. Um, it's a film that we're going to be shooting uh, next year, and uh, and because of the strikes, the project's put on hold. So I was, you know, going to be doing some writing on it, but that that I've stopped that for now. So you're a member of both the Directors Guild as well as of America as well as the Writers Guild. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America. Yes. Oh, you are okay. And uh, why is this strike important? Well, I mean, it's important because it's really, you know, it's it's the first strike in almost 20 years, um, and the issues that concern, you know, writers and writers' guild today are probably some of the most important issues in two decades. And it's really, you know, in the big area is the area of new media. Everyone knows that everything is moving towards the Internet, towards new media, phone content, People are spending less and less time in front of the television, more and more time on, you know, in front of computers. And a lot of media, you know, is, you know, moving towards uh, watching where television programs or movies online. Um, and as of right now, studios and networks are offering writers nothing right now. And so that is the big fight that WGA leadership wants to change. Um, and what's interesting is that it mirrors all the fight what happened 20 years ago during the strike. At that time, the new media was, you know, it was home video and DVDs, and at that time, there was a strike, and and the same argument from the studios was that it's new, you know, we don't understand it, you know, so the writers got a really bad deal out of it, and the deal remained the same in 20 years. There was no increase, which is basically one-third of 1%, which essentially came out to be four cents for, you know, four cents for every dollar. Uh, I'm sorry, four cents for every DVD, not for every dollar, every DVD, I mean, which is nothing, it's a third of 1%. Right. I mean, it costs more. It costs more to package the DVDs and the videos than it did than you know than the residuals to pay the writers. And it was, you know, to think about it, it's absurd. It's nothing. But it was a bad deal. The writers accepted because they want to you know uh, to support this new media. But we all know DVDs and home videos exploded. Became very huge. In fact, DVD sales now often are you know much bigger than theatrical sales. Um, I think I read somewhere in 2006 it was 16.7 billion dollars in DVD sales, which is far higher than, than you know ticket sales for theaters. But yet, writers, you know, the equation that writers, compensation that writers get has not changed. Uh, so, what do you think of the argument that they have, the producers have, that uh, they don't know what, how much they can sell in the new media and streaming media? But that was the argument that they gave us 20 years ago, and and that that's time why they said, well, we it came down to four cents. 
<laughs> well, yeah, at that time the argument in 1988 was, well, we're not sure the things, new thing called home videos, new thing called DVD, we're not sure, you know, so so they gave us a really bad deal, you know, and and those, and those numbers haven't increased in 20 years. So I think it, what the WGA leadership wants to do this time is make sure we don't make the same mistakes. And they're using the same argument. Well, you know what, the Internet is very new, we don't understand it, there's no real business model. But you know what, almost, you know, the head of every single one of these mega corporations you know, have, whether it's to their, you know, you know, in, in speaking to Wall Street and to their shareholders, have said repeatedly, this is the new, you know, this is going to be the new area where a lot of money is going to be made, you know, in the, in the, in the billions and billions of dollars. And, you know, yet they'll talk to their, you know, shareholders and talk to Wall Street one way, but when they speak to us or negotiate with WGA, they say, well, there's no money to be made. So, you know, it, it's, you know, they can't have it both ways. And the most important thing is, is everyone knows that, everyone, you know, that, that, Everything is moving towards the internet, and 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 what the WGA is asking for is a percentage. So if there's no money to be made, then the writers don't get any money. But if there's a lot of money to be made, then the writers will get a little bit of the money, you know. And what the writers are asking for is still a very small percentage, and it's, it's and it's a percentage. So the argument, well, there's no money to be made right now, is everyone knows is false. Right, it's a percentage, so it sh- shouldn't matter. Exactly. It shouldn't matter. It's based on a percentage, which they don't want to give at all right now, you know. And the, and what they want to give us right now is pretty much nothing. So, you know, which is unacceptable, and that's why I think the strike is so strong. And I think, you know, the community of writers come together, you know, in a way that we have not come together in decades, and probably ever in the history of the of the, of the writers' guild. I don't think we've ever come together this strongly before, and it's important. And this is this is one of those moments that's going to be fine. Not only our generation, but the next, the future generations, and um, that's why the fight is so important. Do you? Uh, you were out of the picket lines. What? What was it like? It's pretty amazing because you know writers are pretty solitary people. You know, I, I happen to be a writer director, but most writers are solitary. You don't get out that much. You know, and you don't come together like this. It's pretty funny. You know, I mean, the the, the rally over at Fox. You know, over four thousand people came together, and and and. Um, you know, the vote for to approve the strike was over ninety percent. I mean, that's that's huge, and and but it's an important moment. You know, people call it one. It's one of these sort of watershed moments where you know it's it's, an, it's a defining moment, not only for writers but for artists. And the other thing that's important to mention that this may be the WGA may be leading the the fight, but it's not. But the benefit of this not only for WGA members but for all writers. And not only writers, but for SAG, you know, the Screen Actors Guild contracts are up next June, as well as, as, well as the director's contracts in the UGA. So, what, you know, so this is sort of what was, you know, what, what happens with this fight, I think, will sort of um, will determine, you know, uh, what, the, what the Screen Actors get in, in June as well. So a lot of actors have come out in support. The head of the Screen Actors Guild has, you know, obviously supported us. Um, and numerous unions across the country and globally have supported us. Uh, I think it's, I think everyone knows this is a, this, this is a defining moment. Yeah. Uh, why? Oh, why would um, why would non-members have to uh, observe this? Why, why do you think non-members should also support the strike? Because it's going to be about how artists are treated collectively, and there are a lot of non-members out there who, you know, in a few years or shorter, will be members. We'll be working with the studios. We'll be working networks. So all the non-members out there who are aspiring screenwriters, aspiring actors, or aspiring directors will also benefit from this fight. 
because like you know the you know what what the writers gain from this will you know will have it'll have a ripple effect that will benefit everyone and also it will create a precedent and a business model and you know that that others can can work from you know I've been in, in deal negotiations where sometimes the project may not be a union project mm. but they'll use the basic minimum agreement the minimum basic agreement of these unions as a model for the, for their negotiations let's say you know, you, I know people who aren't WGA members, but will use the minimum agreement and the model, you know, of the of the WGA agreement to to model their own deals with producers, with financiers, and so on and so forth. So, it, it should know, benefit them too. Oh, very much so. It, 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 it for, you know, for numerous reasons. One is because there are a lot of you know, you know, a lot of those people who are non WGA members represent the next generation. You know future screenwriters, actors, directors who will benefit from this in the yeah. future. And also how these mega corporations, the CEOs, treat writers and artists in general, it will, it will have a ripple effect. You know, if they, and, and if we lose this very, very important battle, then which union is next? You know, they, they're going to press their finger really hard, well, you know, or step on, I should say, other unions, whether it be SAG or, you know, uh, you know, or any other organizations in the future. So it's important. It's important to show that artists can come together, can fight for what's right, and and get what's right. And if the CEO of this major, major corporation, let's talk about probably like six people, six companies running everything, the global entertainment, you know. And, and it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's fewer and fewer people are owning more and more of, of this huge, huge sort of entertainment industry. Okay. And... How would this affect uh, independent filmmakers then? I mean, this whole uh, commercial uh, corporatization of the media and uh, well, it's, consolidation. It's option. I mean, when when you have very few people owning so much, then the power becomes in the hands of these mega corporations. Yeah. So 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 what these unions are doing and what the Writers Guild of America is doing right now is even more important because it you know because it says that we can collectively come together and fight for what's right. And imagine, man, if it wasn't for these unions. If, if these writers, these artists were individually alone trying to fight for what's right against these mega, mega billion dollar corporations, we would all be squashed. Well, thank God for these unions, and, you know, and we live in a time where, you know, you, you know, there are less and less unions, but, and, and, and these corporations are getting stronger and stronger. I mean, they're buying up everything. So, you know, it's almost like, you know, the news stations and the magazines and newspapers and these studios are all owned by the same, you know, the same heads of companies now and yeah. and it's scary so um, so that's why the battle that WGA is waging right now is, is an important one and WGA you know has you know can't back down and has to succeed because it's going to benefit everyone else as well uh, what do, oh, are you hearing that they will are they beginning talks now yeah I mean the good news is uh, on Friday around 7 p.m. word went out that that Talks have resumed. It's going to resume after Thanksgiving on the 26th. Mm. So, so that's a huge, huge um, positive news. Up until Friday, you know, everything looks pretty bleak. But I, yeah, I think you know, two weeks of really strong, you know, um, strong striking and picketing. I think has, you know, has has brought negotiations back to the table. I think it's important. I think, I don't think uh, the studios and networks were. Um, knew that this many writers would come together and we would get this much support 
from politicians across the board, and from Hillary Clinton to Obama to John Edwards have voiced their opinion. John Edwards came out to Burbank on Friday, hmm. you know, and walked the picket lines with us wow. and gave a speech. I mean, that's, you know, and unions, like I said, across the country and across the globe um, have, have given support to the WGA. Right. Including, you know, Screen Actors Guild has given tons of support. And a lot of actors, a lot of these TV shows that have been put on hold have come out for support, and a lot of directors as well, and a lot of producers as well. And that's another thing to really distinguish as well. It's really, uh, the battle is really between, the, you know, artists, you mm -hmm. know, and, and the WGA right now with the studios and networks. It's not really with the producers. I mean, it's, you know, cause even, the, you know, and that's something that's important to, to make that distinction. Right, right. Uh, how many uh, how many Asians do you see out there picketing? You know, it's interesting. I just read a report this week, actually, that, that the fastest growing minority in the WGA right now are Asian Americans. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, I heard that like the, the number of Asian Americans have been like doubling every year. Now, granted, there were so few in the beginning that doubling <laughs> isn't that much, <laughs> but, right. but it's, it's still you know it's, it's it's still forward progress and it's still you know a positive thing. And and I heard the fastest growing minority uh, uh, like every year the amount of of, of Asians in uh, registering as members of the WJ. Uh, it's, it's, it's been doubling almost every year. It's the fastest growing, something like that. But I, I, the, when I read that, I was like, wow, I was surprised. It was very positive. And, there, um, you know, and hopefully there will be more. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you know, as, as you know, Asian Americans tend not to go in, as much into uh, the film industry or, or, to, or to become writers, especially when it comes to film writing or TV writing. But it's, it's increasing dramatically. Um, why, why again, I was very surprised to read that. It was, it was the fastest growing... Uh, minority. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Is there more well, demand, I, demand for this for stories? I mean, I mean, look at how many. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Asian voices are now being looked upon. There's great interest. A lot of films, you know, I mean, Asian cinema is exploding. It's from Asia, and and I think there are a lot of. Uh, I think, I think, Asian Asian Americans are seeing that it's a viable. Uh, career yeah. path now. When it's like uh, so many, do the, yeah, for, yeah. For every Asian who succeeds, I think I think you get like, you know, five or six who who, who go, wow, wow, that person can do it. We can do it too, and let, let you know, maybe I can give it a shot as well. So you know, and then you get a snowball effect. Um, you know, and the Asian cinema is booming in Korea. You know, and obviously in Hong Kong and Japan, even growing in Vietnam, and 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 every success story we get, whether stateside or abroad, I think it, it, it creates a lot more interest and a lot more, you know, kids who go, wow, you know what, I can do this too. Do, 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 you, uh, do you see an uh, increase in number of Vietnamese uh, writers also? I think so, I, absolutely. Um, there's definitely an increase. And, um, you know, I did a panel a couple of days ago with a group of Vietnamese American filmmakers, and it was my first time sitting down with these six or seven filmmakers collectively, and and um, it was definitely a a new momentum, a new energy, a new wave of, of Vietnamese American filmmakers, and and you know, and like I said, there was so little to begin with that you know, you know, that if you just get like seven, eight, nine, ten, it's considered a huge improvement. But like I said, you know, it's going to create a snowball effect, and who knows, who knows what fourteen or what fifteen year old right now is is looking to this you know, radio program or watching these new movies coming out or, you know, seeing, oh, my God, if, if, 
if that person over there can do it, this person, you know, this person can go to film school, then maybe I can too, you know, and, and I think we're going to get, uh, in the next few years, even more, I think, Vietnamese Americans who want to go out, write films, write TV programs, and, and get in film business, and I think it's exciting. You know, and also I think, you know, I think Asian Americans, Vietnamese Americans, traditionally tend to be a little more conservative, to go into more conservative fields, to be doctors or lawyers and engineers, and I think, <laughs> I think we're finding that, that, that no one can tell our stories unless we tell them ourselves. And, and um, I think things, things look very exciting. Things are going to be changing a lot, I think. Do you, do you find the producers more open to reading scripts from Asian Americans now? Well, look, I mean, I, I think we have to be realistic about this and say, you know, it's still, you know, we're still far away from where we want to be. It's still an uphill battle. You know, I have to go into any bookstore, any supermarket, look at the magazine racks and how many Asian American faces you see on there. You know, I mean, right. you know, every 100 you might find one, if at all, you know. Yeah. But, um, so, you know, there's still a lot of progress being made. But I can, you know, but as long as we're moving forward and, and, and there are more voices and more filmmakers, then, then, then so long as the wheel is turning in the right direction. And it looks like it is. And, and, um, and like I said, uh, Asian cinema is exploding, exploding, you know, uh, all over Asia. And, you know, when you get, like, so many, almost so many successful American films that have been adapting from Asian films, whether it's The Ring, The Departed. You know, Departed was, was an Asian film first. Right. And, and so many other films. And, and, you know, of course, the trick is to how do you get these films with Asian actors to be shown in America and not just adapt into, you know, uh, into American films with non-Asian actors, you know. So that's the trick. But, but again, I think a more... Um, um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I think the wheel turning in the right direction, and, and, and I think it's going to keep on turning in this direction for quite some time. Uh, there are a lot of exciting filmmakers. I mean, there's a huge explosion coming out of Korea. Exciting filmmakers coming out of all over the Far East and, and Asia in general, and, um, and 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 I think it's going to make people a lot more um, interested in, in Asian stories and Asian voices. And, and also, you know, I think... There's, we have to have a responsibility ourselves. I think a lot of times we're like, well, you know, they don't read, you know, well, people aren't making um, Asian stories, Asian-American films. Well, you know what? We have to, it's our responsibility to come together, make our films, and then and for Asian, Asian-Americans to support these movies. You know, there's, it's, you can't just complain because, you know, you're not, you can't expect other people to make the change for us. So I encourage anyone, everyone out there to seek out Asian films, Asian American films, and, and filmmakers, and and when these films come out, to to, to support these movies. That's the only way we're going to get our voices out there and our films seen and our stories told. It's not just about Hollywood films, right? I mean, you, you, we should support our own media, our community, independent media. Well, that's what I'm saying. Whether it's an Asian American doing something in Hollywood, or doing something in TV, or doing something in an in independent cinema, or doing something within their own communities and releasing the film themselves and distributing the film themselves. And, and absolutely, we have to support, you know, all these voices. Because we don't, and we can't five years from now when we have no, no one to tell our stories, complain why, you know, why we are overlooked. You know, it, it really does, I mean, it, it's a symbiotic relationship between the audience and the artist. And the artist can't do it without the audience. Mm. You know, and the audience is their stories aren't going to be told without the artists. So that, that relationship is very important. So the Asian communities have to support these Asian artists 
for the Asian artists to be viable and continue to tell the stories that matter to our communities. Do you plan to make more movies in Vietnam? I do. I do. I made, you know, I made two, you know, my short film, my feature in Vietnam, then, then you know, we did a, a, a Vietnamese film in America. And so, you know, my first three projects were all Vietnamese-based. Um, the one doing HBO, HBO right now isn't, and uh, I have a couple of projects that, that, that you know, um, are not Vietnamese stories, but I definitely, I'm already in t in developing two other stories that will be set and shot in Vietnam, and, and um, I'm excited to go back to Vietnam and do those in the, in the near future. So, so do you find it more, uh, is the government there more accommodating, accommodating to uh, returning uh, Vietnamese-American actors and directors? Uh, I don't know, accommodating, you know. I mean, I think it's, I mean, my experience was difficult. The experience that I found when I talked to other Vietnamese filmmakers who have gone back to shoot there are difficult. And the Vietnamese filmmakers who shoot films in Vietnam, I mean, I mean Vietnamese nationals, they have a, they have a difficult time, too. Um... You know, but I don't think I should stop anyone. You know, is making a film in America easy? No, it's not easy either. Is making a film in Europe easy? No. I think making a film anywhere is tough. And and so, um, you know, there's tend to be a lot, a lot of talk about, oh, it's so tough to make a film in Vietnam, but it's tough to make a film anywhere. And I think if you have an important story to tell, you've got to do it. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, um, you know, um, I think every country... Uh, sets up its own barriers that you have to overcome and has its own set of difficulties that you have to understand and overcome. And, um, and I think Vietnam is no different. But, you know, it just, obviously Vietnam is, is, is an exciting place. It's, it's quickly changing and there are incredible amount of stories to be told there. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, our interview with uh, Tony Bui, uh, which we taped late last night. Uh, he's the director of Three Seasons, and he's an active picketer at, during this uh, Directors Guild of America strike uh, in Hollywood. Um, now we're going to... Oh, you're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. Um this is uh, Subversity with Dan Sung. Um, today we're also going to be talking with um, Sylvia Martin, who's uh, writing a dissertation in anthropology at UC Irvine on media industries. Uh, she's conducted ethnographic research uh, on production on the production process of commercial film and t TV programs in Hollywood and in Hong Kong media industries. Her fieldwork experience includes working as as a film and TV production uh, at uh, a film and TV production company at Warner Brothers Studio, and he she has been uh, observing, uh, doing field observation on the set of numerous films and TV shows, and has even worked um, prior to graduate work on National Geographic TV specials. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Sylvia. Thank you. Yeah, um, you have been out there observing the picketers. Uh, why did you do that, and what did you see? Okay. Um, well, thank you for having me on the show, Dan. Um, I had done quite a bit of ethnographic research. I'd um, observed on the set of a number of 
uh, Hollywood film and television shows, just hanging out on the set, observing the labor, um, and the same thing in Hong Kong. So when the strike happened, I was very interested to see what was happening on the actual picket line, um, as well as just sort of following the issues. But I wanted to... Uh, get a sense, you know, an immediate sense of what's actually happening on the picket line, um, and also to watch the interaction between production crew members, people below the line, such as camera operators, grips, carpenters, um, as they're entering and exiting the studios where the writers are picketing and, and the Teamsters, people driving transportation to sort of see uh, how these confrontations might play out if there were indeed any confrontations. Be, uh, you said behind, uh, below the line. What, what, does, what do you mean above and below the line? Okay, good question. Um, there is a division um, above the line and below the line. And above the line refers to wh when you go see a movie, um, and the credits start as the movie's beginning, generally. People who get the above-the-line credit are the producer, the director, the stars, the lead actors, actresses, the writer, and sometimes the director of cinematography, uh, sometimes a production designer. But uh, it's usually these individuals. And then... Um, below the line is everybody else um, who works in the crafts, uh, technicians, uh, artisans, people such as makeup artists, carpenters, electricians, camera operators, the crew. And there's this sort of, you know, informal division as well with above the line and below the line that above the line is seen as sort of um, a little more white collar and below the line, a little more blue collar, in a sense. That's that's. I wouldn't say that that is um, always the case, but there's this sense that above the line is, oh, those individuals who who have agents and have managed to get good deals. And a lot of what I'm seeing and hearing um, is that this is sort of a battle within the above-the-line ranks, and people who are below the line, such as camera operators, carpenters, uh, hairstylists, they're a little peeved that production has come to a halt on so many TV shows and even now some films um, because of this wrangling, you know, between the above-the-line people, the studios and the writers. Do the, do the people below the line get a cut of any of the residuals? That's a good question. Um, people below the line, their, their union, which is IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Moving Picture Technicians, Artists, and Allied Crafts, which is basically, you know, camera operators, makeup artists, carpenters, um, they, their union gets, um, I think it's about 40, 40 cents for each DVD from home video. So they do get some residual, but their residual goes directly into their health plan and pension fund. They don't, as individuals, receive cuts of the profits, which is what the writers get and which, you know, they're trying to receive more of. So um, They were getting, uh, uh, according to Tony, uh, Tony Bui, he said that they were only getting four cents each writer. The writers. Yeah, so... Right, the, the writers... Okay. Because they're individuals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But their individuals are actually getting um, four cents as individuals. 
uh, the crew people don't receive a cent as individuals. That the the profits that are made that go to their union to the to the IATSE guild that goes directly into these plans. They don't personally really mm. receive it, but they they benefit from it and that they have these healthy plans. Um, so if the, if the the writers are successful in the strike and get a higher percentage of um, they want know, another four cents for home video and also for streaming, I suppose. Uh, right, they want to get residuals more. in the first place in the first for, place, for yeah. streaming and new media because right now they're not getting any. So it should help uh, in terms of negotiations with the other unions, I suppose. This is what the writers are telling me. Um, some of them, you know, when I would ask them about, well, you know, any tensions with, with production crew, people below the line, and they'd say, well, a little, but, you know, success for one union is success for all unions. And the more that the Writers Guild can negotiate for in residuals, the more they'll be spread out, the more that will trickle down to the other unions, the craft and, you know, technical, mm. technical unions. Um, but I, I interviewed an assistant camera operator, and, you know, she said a, a lot of what happens on a film and television set um, can be somewhat hierarchical, and some of the tensions felt between above the line and below the line are being played out now in the strike, in that a lot of crew people um, that I've talked to feel that, you know, the writers, look, they just want more money, and they're not on set working 18 hours a day like we are. Um, and they also get paid. The residuals, you know, are on top of the actual fee that they get paid. Um, so I think some of the production crew feel that writers are being a little unreasonable. Um, but that's just one perspective. Mm-hmm. The writers don't always get, I mean, they don't have full-time jobs often, right? Exactly. The WGA has been saying that up to nearly 50% of its members are not working at any given time. And there are conflicting numbers about what the median salary is for a member of the WGA. I hear anything from 33000 a year to 48000 to 60000 to 90000 I think it really depends. But there are many members of the WGA who don't make any money Per year, uh, you might sell a screenplay for $400,000, and you might not sell anything else for 15 years. So those residuals are very, very important. And this is also one reason why people like to turn to television, because it's considered a steadier paycheck than screenplays. Mm. Um, But um, if I can, I'd like to to, um, talk a little bit about how the strike is affecting um, specific genres, not just how it's affecting people um, by their profession or their tasks. And I'll go back to the example of the assistant camera operator, who's a woman. Uh, she's a second assistant on many sitcoms, and um, but she works, she works really on just a few sitcoms, and they've all been closed down um, in the past couple of weeks since the strike started. They were a couple of the very high-profile situation comedies that were affected and shut down. She's out of work, um, and she's having to move out of her apartment because she's very concerned about her income. Her sister is also a member of IATSE, uh, which is the guild for all the craftspeople, but her sister is a makeup artist. But what's interesting is that her sister is a makeup artist for game shows, and her sister is a makeup artist on a very, very popular game show right now that has many, many viewers. And since the strike started, the network just ordered 
twice as many episodes of the game show than they had previously because game show writers are not um, they're not able to really strike right now. So it's even a different union. Or- Um, oh, they're not in the union. They're not in the union. Oh, they're not yeah. in the union. So what's interesting is you have one family. You have, you know, one set of sisters, two sisters. Right. They're both, you know, craftspeople. They're both in the in the crafts guild. Yet because they work in different genres, they're impacted very differently by this strike. And you've got a little bit of the sibling rivalry yeah. going on. And I thought it was fascinating because I hadn't really thought about the implications of genre because the camera operator, yeah. her social network. Um, is people who work in sitcoms, so it's very hard for her to segue now to game mm. shows. And the game show, just like the reality division and documentaries, they're being flooded with offers from people who who want to work in those fields now. Because of course, situation comedies, one-hour dramas, you know, they're all being shut down. So do they? Uh, will they get with the person who has to? She has to move out of her apartment uh, because she doesn't want to risk um, not paying the rent. Uh, Will she be able to collect uh, unemployment if the if her job is shut down? That's a good question. Um, she did not specify. <clears throat> excuse me. She did not specify. Um, I think the production companies are not offering anything, and I think that within the guild there might be a fund to help people keep going for a little bit. Mm. But um, and you know Hollywood is very much a union town. Um, I'll share an anecdote um, that I observed. I was observing on the set of a one-hour drama for over a year, and uh, one of my first times observing, I was invited to observe in the hair and makeup trailer, which is where all the sort of stars of the show were assembled and had their hair and makeup done. And this is a site of a lot of tension because. Um, This is where where people are gossiping in the hair and makeup trailer. You have a lot of the stars of the show in one place, and people feel kind of vulnerable. They feel physically exposed, and um, I think also in a, an affective manner too. Um, but uh, what I didn't expect was the tension between the makeup artist and the hairstylist. And what happened was a makeup artist had finished making up. An actor and the hairstylist was doing was fixing the hair of the actor. Then the hairstylist proceeded to groom the eyebrows of the actor, and the makeup artist started yelling at the hairstylist. And the dispute was that you know the eyebrows are on the terrain of the face, and the face is is the makeup mm. artist territory. But the hairstylist said, "Eyebrows might be on the face, but eyebrows are hair, and I'm a hairstylist, so oh, eyebrows are my territory." <laughs> and there was a huge yelling match, and the hairstylist started crying. The makeup artist was getting agitated. Everybody stopped working to slow down production. Finally, someone got the first assistant director, who really sort of manages all these kinds of relationships on set. The first assistant. Uh, director, I'm sorry, did I say manager? I, first assistant director came in to the hair and makeup trailer and had to resolve the dispute, um, sort of like Solomon's baby, um, and you know, he ruled in favor of the makeup artist. Mm. But um, and there's a real historical tension there because uh, people used to do hair and makeup together, but suddenly um, I think. I'm not sure how many years ago they started to make it into two separate jobs. So it's all about job protectionism. How about on the on the picket line? 
what was that like? You, you, uh, I understand a lot of celebrities showed up to support the screenwriters. Yes, yes. Last week, last Tuesday, there was a huge, huge um, display of star power. Uh, members of the Screen Actors Guild were asked to come out and show their support last Tuesday, which was a strike in front of Universal Studios. And I was there, and there were close to 3,000 people. It was sort of like a festival. There was a rock band. There was lots of free pizza, lots of free drinks, Pete's Coffee, um, and there were stars of all the sitcoms, a lot of films, you know, Jack, uh, Jack Black, Jay Leno was there, I interviewed quite a few people, and uh, one of the things I noticed was um, there's a real affection for comedy writers on the part of actors, and I think part of that is due um, to how that genre is filmed, um, shows like Seinfeld and Friends and Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, a lot of these shows, these situation comedies, are filmed in front of a live studio audience. And when the actors are rehearsing and filming for the audience, they can tell immediately from the audience if the jokes are falling flat or not mm. working or if the timing's off. And the writers are right there on set. And there's, as you mentioned, a symbiotic relationship between the writers and the actors. And on the picket line, when I would start to interview some of these uh, celebrities from these sitcoms, they would sort of yank over their, their comedy writer because um, they were all having reunions on the picket line. The, the picket right. line was a big site of reunion. You know, people hadn't seen each other in years and hugging and kissing. Yeah. And, oh, what are you doing now? I finally get to see you. But they would sort of bring over their writer and be, oh, this is my writer. You should talk to my writer. And, you know, they clearly work very closely together. And I think also a lot of actors who've worked um, on sitcoms, a lot of them started in improv, and a lot of them started in stand-up comedy, and they have a writer's sensibility. Mm-hmm. So there's this very close relationship, and that's quite different from what I observed on, on the set of uh, one-hour drama, where the writers were working at the other end of the studio. They were very removed from the actual set. The set is like a production floor, and they were very removed from the logistics and the labor on the set. And the actors liked them, but there was a sense of, oh, gosh, you know, what are they going to write for us this week? You know, who are they going to kill off this week? Um, they, it wasn't such a sense of, of unity. And the crew especially would sort of um, mock the writers, the drama writers sometimes, because sometimes in the stage directions, in the scripts that you'd get, um, the writers would write stage directions and they'd, and they'd, they would make mistakes about the physical layout of mm-hmm. the set. Mm-hmm. And the crew would be like, see, they, you know, they don't even come down here on the floor and, and see what's going on. They don't even know this stuff. You know? So, mm-hmm. um, again, another difference with genre. Do, they, um, do, do people, when they do the actual filming, do they deviate from the script? That's a really good question. Um, I think with comedy... You see that more because, again, you have, in some cases, not all, in some cases you have actors who have some kind of comedy background and might mm. make suggestions. And maybe they have, they have um, honed relationships with the writers such that they feel that they can speak up. It really depends. Um, so there is, there is some interaction there. Can they improvise on the set? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Some of these shows, um, 
you can definitely improvise on the set. With drama, it's much harder. Drama tends to be much more scripted. And a lot of times, especially a one-hour show, a lot of time and preparation goes into plotting out storylines um, for some of these characters. You know, a show that's been around for like five or eight years um, fans are very invested in, and the writers are invested in, they might have sort of a grand plan of what's going to happen with various characters, how they'll intersect, who will have affairs with whom, and, you know, illnesses and all these things. And so for a writer to suddenly say, you know what, it's okay if I do this other thing instead, that's not as encouraged, I think, with a dramatic format. But there, there, there is some improvisation. Like, mm. can, I, can I maybe just sort of... It changes one word a little bit. I, I think my character would say this. And that's a very good question. Actually, a lot of the writers are very interactive. But again, you have to have been working on the show for a while. You have to have a good relationship. Um, and in some sh- with some shows, the, ri- the actors have been around longer than the writers. And the actors definitely feel an ownership uh, for their characters that they play, without a doubt. Did you see any... Um was there any opposition to the pickets? Uh. Yeah, um, I I think that um, yeah, I saw some some production crews, some camera operators, and grips that I I knew. Um, they did not look happy at all hmm. um, when they were having to cross the street from where their cars were parked back onto the studio lot as the picketers were crossing the street with them and sort of yelling kind of in their face. Um, they did not look happy. I've heard it expressed more rather than seen it. They were um, going, they and were it, crossing the picket lines, or, or well, they were going to work? for a production crew, they're not strictly crossing the picket line. For oh. IOTC, they're not, they're not crossing the picket line. Oh, because they're not on strike. Exactly, it's not their guild that's on strike. Um, and mm. also, what I did see outside Fox Studios were a lot of like studio executives. Um, pulling into the studio a lot as, as the writers and some actors were striking and sort of shielding their faces or mm. talking on their cell phone. And some of the writers said to me, look at that. They're not even having a real conversation. They're just holding their phone up to look like they're busy and, oh. and that kind of thing. I didn't see too much hostility. And I did see quite a few actors who were filming come out on their lunch hour to support the writers. It's more a case of um, talking to people Mm. and hearing their disapproval of the strike. A lot of production crew, they're out of jobs and the holidays are starting. And like I said, they don't feel that they stand to benefit as individuals from these strikes. Um, And I... I, I think it's quite complicated, and I think it really does point to the division within the film industry of above-the-line and below-the-line um, workers. And I, I, think that, I think that the writers are, they see themselves as fighting a historical injustice when in 1985 they were asked by the industry, or told rather by the industry, look, we don't know where home video is going. VHS tapes are very expensive to manufacture and ship and produce. So we're asking you to take such a small cut. Like 4%, 4 cents on a dollar. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you'll get compensated later. Well, we'll, you know, we'll revisit this issue later. Well, VHS took off and then DVD sales really took off. And so even though there there is some uncertainty about what is going to happen with new media because you know the studios are saying, well, the profits from new media are only now in the millions, they're not in the billions. But I think it's sort of the principle 
this is what I keep hearing, kept hearing on the picket line was, we are not going to get screwed over like we did back in the 80s. And they really feel that they were maligned. And they feel, you know, a lot of them said, look, we're writers. And as writers, you know, especially before uh, I think computers were um, mm-hmm. so prevalent, you know, they're seen as sort of working with, you know, pen and paper and, and somewhat naive about the future of technology. And there is a mystique about technology that the studios definitely perpetuate as a strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they just feel that they're, they're fighting against this historical injustice. And there's this real concern that with uh, webisodes and cell phone downloads where they're not receiving any residuals, that since TV is probably going to morph into Internet, that everyone's going to be watching their shows on the Internet one day, this is the studio's ways of starting to phase out the residuals. And it's not that they're not getting paid an upfront fee for what they write, but they're not getting residuals. And they see the residuals as Mm. sort of as part of their payment. And the studios are like, well, it's not really. You You do get a fee. Do you know, have you looked at any contracts that screenwriters sign? Do they talk about the Internet? Um, no, I have not. Mm. Because I, I know there's a Digital Millennium Act, and um, the freelance writers, for instance, uh, talking about another um, related issue, the freelance writers uh, went to court and sued, and so uh, they won at the Supreme Court, uh, Tarsini case. So that any freelance writer who writes an article, say, for the LA Times, and um, there's no agreement to put it on the net, they they actually c- uh, cannot put it on the net, in mm. theory. In theory, mm. And so libraries actually have faced that issue with uh, content being removed from online databases. Uh, and some people even, uh, some, <laughs> some producers or uh, publishers have taken it off from microfilm either, although that's another, uh, another area, actually. But on digital content, actually, the in in theory, the the writer has to have given permission to the publisher to put it online. Uh-huh. Uh, since this um, this new law or whatever, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, or maybe even before that, but the Tassini decision definitely protected the rights of freelance writers. So I don't, uh-huh. I'm not sure how that affects uh, screenwriters. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um. Another observation from the picket line um, was that I I kept hearing that this is all about protecting the middle-class writers because Mm. I think the WGA sort of urged its members on the picket line to really reinforce um, or to fight against the idea that all writers are rich, right? I mean, I saw the um, head writer for The Simpsons on the picket line, and Mm. I I have to say, some of these picket lines... uh, some of the most genteel and well-dressed picket lines I've ever seen. Um, not all of them, but, you know, definitely. Um, but I think they really want to emphasize that this is a battle for the middle-class writers, the people who really don't make much money. Um, and you do have members of the WGA who are also, you know, sort of part of the whole indie contingent. Right. definitely. Um, and what was interesting was I I asked a few people on the picket line, actors and writers, 
about how they they saw their struggle tying into larger issues of globalization and, and you know corporate downsizing and outsourcing the general trend to outsourcing that has affected many other industries and um, what was interesting was I heard a few people say look um, we what we do cannot be outsourced you can't outsource what we do to China and I heard this a few times about, you know, you can't outsource what we do to China. What we do is uniquely American, not Canadian, not British. It's U.S. culture. It it's, it's sort of reflects the, the U.S. experiences. But I thought the China reference was very interesting, given the timing, because just a, a few days prior to one of the writers and, and one of the actresses who said this to me, um, just a few days prior to that, um, there's the filming of the latest Batman movie, the Hollywood production of the latest Batman movie, filming in Hong Kong, a special administrative region of China, technically now a, a part of China. And the film production, yes, it has its American stars and its American director, but it's relying upon the resources and the labor of the Chinese territory because a lot of the local production crew are Hong Kong locals and they're able to take advantage of very lax labor laws. There's no union for Hong Kong production crews and Hong Kong extras um, and uh, they're using the resources. Um, I think the, the, the famous skyline of Hong Kong, they asked to keep the electricity going to light up the, sky the um, skyline for, for 24 hours. And they're relying upon the labor and the resources of this Chinese territory. And this, this uh, really represents um, a notion of, of um, this, this theory that media scholar Toby Miller talks about, the new international division of cultural labor, where Hollywood productions are very much reliant upon um, second world, third world, you know, developing, and, 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 and you know, first world regions, um, to bolster their productions. Do you see uh, writer, writing being outsourced to? Like this could uh, third world writers be submitting scripts and then they're not members of WGA and um, would, would, could that happen? I think it could. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with where the studios um, get new scripts from. I think that there's already, you know, shows like On the Lot, Project Greenlight, already asking sort of the masses to come up with their own scripts, and they put it together, and then, you know, you have you cut out having to pay writing talent. Um, whether hmm. they're going to come from overseas is a really good question, and I, I was thinking about that. Is this an unintended consequence that you're going to see writers from maybe Hong Kong or Belgium or where have you um, have a higher presence? I, I'm not so sure about that, especially since I think it's in the next few days there's going to be a sympathy strike from the International Affiliation of Writers Guild. I think a lot of writers all over the world are in sympathy mm -hmm. with the Writers sure. Guild. But I'm sure there are plenty of independent, up-and-coming writers in other parts of the world who feel that, um, you know, this is their chance. Um, and, and let's not forget that studios such as Miramax have, um, 
have taken have have bought the rights to many Korean and Japanese films and either these films sit on the shelf or they're remade or there are plans to remake mm, these mm. films um i think one of the one of the ones is by uh the hong kong filmmaking duo the pang brothers mm. the eye horror um yeah. they want to remake that and i believe it's still in development to remake it so they do get ideas from writers from other parts of the world. How it's going to play out now, I don't know. I think we're going to be seeing some very interesting things happen if it's not settled. I know that um, the Writers Guild and the um, the producers, the studios, are going to be sitting down on uh, November 26th. They're going to be uh, resuming talks. Although, right. in the meantime, the writers are not halting their strike. They are continuing to pick it. To put up the pressure. To put up the pressure. And, you know, the first week, um, their shifts were starting, I think it was at 9 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, they were starting at 9 a.m. in the It was 8 or 9 in the morning. Um, I, I got there a little after that. And last week, though, they, they started changing the shifts to starting at 6 a.m. The reason being that is when the Teamsters arrive when the the people in the trucks come and they bring inside the trucks they have props they have camera equipment they have everything you need for these productions and the the writers really wanted to try and put a lot of pressure on the teamsters and if anything at, at the very least to to slow down their work by picketing right in front of the studios and really getting in their face um, because the Teamsters, you know, they're separate from IOTC. They're separate from the crafts sure. and technicians. And the Teamsters do support the strike. However, the actual production companies, the actual studios they work for have told them if they don't show up for work, they will be fired. But their local has told them it is up to you as to how you handle this. And so many of the Teamsters have either driven very slowly and shown up late at the studios with with all the the, the goods, everything that's needed for the shows. Or what I saw um, outside Warner Brothers, I saw one Teamster pull up across the street from the studio gate right by a lot of the WGA picketers. And he just, you know, braked right there, pulled his car, his truck over. And I said, what? Why isn't he pulling in? And they said he is leaving his truck right here. And this means that the production assistants on the show that he's delivering stuff to, like such as the dry cleaning or the props, whatever, um, have to actually come out. They have to leave the set. They have to cross the street and unload the truck <laughs> and walk back across the street. Mm. They have effectively slowed down production but the teamster it's not, it's not as if he didn't show up for work he's not going to get fired but it's it's definitely slowing down the production process and as we all know time equals money and that really um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a loud statement but i know the teamsters have been very conflicted about this and you know some teamsters have said look uh it's not as if the writers guild does sympathy strikes for us when we've struck mm-hmm. in the past but i think um you know there's a sense that we're fighting the corporate man. Mm-hmm, um, I think mm-hmm. this is what I hear quite a bit on the picket line is, well, everyone can get around this issue. You know, no matter who you are, where you're from, what your income is, we all want to fight multinational corporations. We all want to fight media conglomerates. This is a strike for the little guy. This is a strike for the middle class. Um, 
it's a, a very white strike as far as what I've seen. Mm. But it, you know, it is, it is a, 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 a fight worth fighting for many, is there, many people. Is there any, um, there's no fight over outsourcing right now in this uh, strike? Um, I think that that is not being articulated, but mm. I do think that this is a concern for the writers, definitely. That because animation has been outsourced, you've got people mm. uh, in South Korea uh, filling in some of the sketches for The Simpsons, for instance, for you know a quarter of the rate that a U.S. animation artist would make. So I think there's a sense that you know. You know, productions are basically outsourced. You know, runaway productions, right. filming in other places in Mexico, you know, with Titanic, where you can pay carpenters, you know, a, a quarter of what you would pay um, sure. a Hollywood carpenter. And I think there's a sense, like I said, the writers feel like, look, what we do is so unique. It's reflective of a very specific sensibility, and that can't be outsourced. But I'm not so sure that the studios um, entirely agree, especially since. Most of the profits that Hollywood films make come from overseas, not from domestic audiences. I mean, there you get into a debate as to what are the foreign audiences, wh what are they digesting? Do they... They want Christian Bale. <laughs> they want Christian Bale. <laughs> Who doesn't want Christian Bale? Right. Well, but on that note, actually, we're <laughs> out of time. So uh, we've been talking with um, Sylvia Martin, who is a graduate student here at uh, UC Irvine in anthropology, giving us an ethnographic uh, analysis of the picket line and earlier we had an interview with uh, Tony Bui the director of Three Seasons who is on the picket line and so uh, this is Dan Zhang signing off with Subversity. Thank you Dan. Thank you Sylvia. Thank you Dan. This is uh, Dan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for <laughs> being here so early. Uh, the website is kuci.org slash tilde d-t-s-a-n-g where you can find an audio um, file of this show later today. Um, uh, this is Dan Sang with KECI 88.9 FM in Irvine.